we actually improved muscle endurance in the absence of physical exercise. What we found in this study is that the endurance improved just by taking the supplement. That is exciting. I mean, that's showing that there's actually a positive benefit going on. Hello again and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. This episode is brought to you in association with Amazentis, a Swiss life science company that's pioneering cutting-edge, clinically validated cellular nutrition under its Timeline brand. Now, scientific validation of new lifestyle interventions is all important, whether they be diet, supplementation or exercise regimes. Today we're going to focus on the science of our evolving understanding of the role mitochondria play in the aging process and the many degenerative diseases that could impact us as we grow older. Mitochondria are often described as the powerhouses of our cells, their role being to generate energy in the form of ATP, adenosine triphosphate, a little school biology here, energy our cells can use to make our bodies function. We cannot live without them. Our guest today specialises in the science of mitochondrial health in humans. Professor David Marcinek is a researcher in the Department of Radiology at the University of Washington here in the United States. David, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Uh, thank you, Peter. I'm looking forward to talking today. This should be fun. Yeah, really good to talk to you. My one-line description there of what mitochondria are for and how they work probably didn't do them 100% justice. So maybe right at the top, you could give us a, a fuller definition of, of what mitochondria are, how they function, and why we need them. Sure. No. So actually, I think that was a perfect start. You know, that's what everybody knows. That's what everybody remembers from their undergraduate biochemistry, right? They're little kidney bean shaped things that are the powerhouse of the cell. You know, if you, if you, you know, ask your family doctor, you know, tell them you work with mitochondria that, you know, you'll see them scratch their head and say, oh yeah, powerhouse of the cell, right? Yeah. You know, and, you know, so, and that's, that's really for years that was thought of their, to be their primary and, you know, really, uh, you know, your main process is to supply the energy for your cell to do all the things it needs to do, right? You know, you make proteins, make, make new DNA, you know, pump ions, contract, you know, allows your muscles to contract. But over the last couple of decades, it's really becoming increasingly clear that, you know, that these, you know, these little powerhouses, you know, uh, actually sit kind of at the, at, at the nexus or the intersection of both the energy that your cell needs, but also become really important for cell signaling and that they're, they're taking all of the, all this information that the cell and then, you know, ultimately your body is receiving from the environment, from nutrient levels to stress levels. And they're integrating that and then, and playing a really important role in cell signaling, which then ultimately becomes, you know, really your stress response, how your body, how your cells, and then ultimately your body then are able to adapt to these changing conditions. And extrapolating that even further in terms of how we operate as, as human beings, we rely on energy. We are energetic beings. We expel or we utilize energy to, to get around to physically function. And that's why ultimately at a cellular level, they are important. Absolutely. You know, without Without energy, I mean, basically, you know, you know, kind of life is the sign is defined by having the, this energy flow, right? So, in order for us to move around, in order for our muscles to work, we have a huge energy turnover. It's you know, so uh, 
you know, estimates uh, for the ATP production, which you described very nicely in the beginning, are uh, you know several pounds of ATP a day are kind of turned over in your body because that's what allows your your cells to do all the stuff they need to do, and then as you mentioned, your body to move around and you know really I think the most the most obvious way we interact with the energetics is our ability to exercise or just do our daily activities, you know, walk up a flight of stairs, go get groceries, you know, that's a huge energy demand. And that puts a big tax on our mitochondria. So keeping those mitochondria healthy are really important for maintaining our, our, our quality of life kind of as we, as we, as we age or in the context of chronic diseases. So linking that further to aging then and the process of growing older, clearly one of the Symptoms, if you can use that word, of being older is perhaps less energy, less physical ability to get around and to do stuff, perhaps inferior muscle strength to what you enjoyed as a younger person. That ultimately can be drawn back to how your mitochondria are functioning as an older person. Absolutely. So uh, the, it's, it's, really, it's becoming clear now that the, the, the health of your mitochondria plays a very important role in your ability to you know, like you said, you know, just move around, you know, conduct your daily life. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the, from, from an energetic perspective, they're critical, right? So as, as they become less healthy, you're, you're less able to generate the energy that you need to, you know, do all these normal activities. But I think also critical is this whole, whole stress response and ability to deal with, you know, changing conditions uh, as well. And, you know, when that kind of breaks down, that makes you less resilient or less able to adapt to new stresses, which is another factor associated with aging. So let's delve into that further. But first, maybe we could just yeah. talk in some general terms about you and your career and what got you to this point. I detect already your enthusiasm <laughs> for this subject. Where does that enthusiasm come from in terms of uh, what did you study initially and, and how did you come to specialize in this area? Yeah, so uh, I, I've, I've kind of, it's it's been a, been a roundabout way to get here. So when I, when I, when I entered undergrad, I was set that I wanted to be study biology, but I was going to be a geneticist, right? That was, that was, that was my goal. And then it was a, an animal physiology class as an undergrad that really focused on energy flow through, through, through living animals and just really highlighted the, the, the critical role that the energetics plays and your ability to, you know, so you and I are just sitting here right now. We're not really generate, you know, requiring that much energy from our muscles, right? You know, I'm, I'm gesticulating with my hands a little bit, you know, so a little bit, but we're, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty, uh, pretty much at rest. But then suddenly if I needed to jump up and, you know, you know, my, you know, I had to run out of the room, there'd be a huge energetic need in this really short amount of time. And I just became fascinated with how the body is able to respond quickly and meet those energy demands. That kind of took me to an interest in the mitochondria and metabolism. And then <laughs> a really big turn I entered when I went into graduate school, I actually studied tuna fish. Hmm. And energy metabolism in tuna, because if you've ever been tuna fishing, you know that these have, they're hugely energetic, hugely strong, you know, uh, you know, really powerful muscles, uh, in these fish. And they're a little different in fish and they have different temperatures. And I was interested in how, how the temperature of the muscle affects, uh, uh, energy metabolism. And then through grad school, I became more and more interested in how, this sort of stuff I was studying in this comparative evolutionary context 
fit into a more sort of health-focused sort of clinical environment. And then that ultimately took me to the University of Washington, where I, you know, I started working in a, a more biomedical context in the Department of Radiology and, you know, try to understand aging and chronic disease and how, wh- what role the mitochondria play in, uh, in, in this process. It's always interesting to me talking to people like you that the interest in aging kind of creeps up on you as you develop yeah. your studies and your understanding of your, your very niche speciality. And I think there's often a realization that many scientists in different fields come across, and that is that aging is, a, is at the center of everything when we're talking about the living being. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's clear now that aging is really the main risk factor for most chronic diseases, right? Uh, so there are you know, multiple uh, reviews and studies out there that show, you know, if you can, you know, if you cure cancer, you improve lifespan, uh, uh, life expectancy a certain amount, you know, if you, you know, cure heart disease, you, you improve life expectancy a certain amount. But the, that uh, improvement really is a, is a fraction of what you get if you can really slow the aging process or make people more resistant to these stresses as you age. You know, so from a from a just, you know, impact on quality of life and, you know, human activity perspective, you know, focusing on aging, you know, is is really kind of, from my perspective, the place to be. It's interesting you phrase it like that as aging being a a risk factor. And it's it's a phrase actually I hear more and more these days. I also hear from from some people aging described as a disease itself, which I personally don't get and don't really like to hear of aging described as a disease. I see aging simply as the passing of the years and the process of growing old and the the number doesn't change. It still gets bigger as we get older. And it doesn't, to me, feel like a disease. I think, as you described it, better describe it as perhaps symptomatic of a number of chronic conditions that can affect us as we get older. Yeah, I I think that's that's an ongoing sort of controversy or debate. And it's, you know, from, right. and it's kind of, you know, tends towards the more, you know, philosophic really, you know, is how, is how you really think about it. Um, it really, you know, if you, you think about aging as part of, you know, as part of your life history, right? Just like development, you know, just like adolescence, you know, you've got these stages. So, you know, I think the body functions differently throughout these different stages. And during what we term aging, you know, which is a, a constantly moving target, right? Or the, or the, an age state, your body is just functioning differently and it puts it at a greater risk for these, these other diseases, you know? So I, I tend to agree with you. I, I don't, in my personal thinking, I don't think of necessarily aging as a disease in and of itself. Right. So let's talk about your work now and how you carry out that research. You do in vivo studies as opposed to in vitro, which perhaps more people are, are familiar with. So can you just maybe in, in as simple terms as possible explain the, certainly the difference between those two terms, but how you actually carry out your research? Absolutely. Uh, and so to explain the difference in the terms, I think it's, you know, I think it's a, a, a good uh, to go back to my transition from what I was doing as a graduate student and then why I ultimately end up in a radiology department, right? So uh, the way most people study mitochondria and energy metabolism is, you know, they, they take it, the, a tissue out of the body and either isolate the mitochondria or look at, you know, take the cells out and look at the cells and how they function. And that's in vitro or in situ, separating it from the body, right? And you can learn a tremendous amount by this approach. 
right? You know, you, you have you have you have exquisite control over the system. You can do very controlled, very detailed experiments, but ultimately you're kind of removing what you want to study from the physiological system, right? And kind of as I mentioned in the beginning, mitochondria really sit at this intersection of pulling in all these signals from all, you know from the cell, from the environment. So a lot of things affect your mitochondrial function. And so as a grad student, this is, I was doing the in vitro work. I was taking these tissues out. I was kind of grinding them up. You know, I was looking at enzyme assays and I started to think that, you know, becoming a little less satisfied with this approach. And I wanted to kind of take a more integrative picture. So that's when I moved to a radiology department. And so the reason I'm in a radiology department is because one of the tools we use is magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And so I came here to do a, a, a postdoc with, uh, with Kevin Conley and Marty Kushmerik, who had pioneered these studies of actually measuring energetics using magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And this, the approach is, uh, similar to, uh, many people have gotten an MRI, right? And so with the, you, you go, you go in the magnet, in, in this big magnet and, it uses the, and I'm not going to get into this one because this gets over my head pretty quickly. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I don't want to put everyone to sleep, but it basically uses some of the quantum properties of some of the atoms in the body to generate a signal. And so when you go in to an MRI machine, you're focusing on protons in water, right? And so you excite these protons and it, they, they give off signals under different conditions and you can get a picture of what your, 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 your muscles and your, your different organs and your tissues look like based on their environment. So what we do though is instead of looking at protons, we look at phosphorus. And phosphorus also gives off a signal. And we use spectroscopy instead of, instead of taking an image, we, we get a, uh, basically it's like a waveform that tells us how much of a certain molecule is in the muscle. And going back to what you mentioned earlier, adenosine triphosphate, right? So, there's three phosphates on the, in, in this molecule. So, and there's also another molecule called phosphocreatine in your muscle. And so these phosphates are critical to the energy state of your muscle. So what we can do with this, with this magnetic resonance uh, or MRS, we can look at the concentration of these different molecules and do things to the muscle, have people exercise, stimulate it, make it ischemic, and watch how they change over time. And that gives us the ability to actually measure the energy flux through the system. And then we can calculate how much ATP the mitochondria are making under different conditions, how efficient they are in that sort of stuff. And so that allows us to take what the, we used to be these in vitro experiments. And now then we can kind of do similar measurements in vivo in this, this intact muscle in people and animals and things. So yeah, apologize if I, if, if I went off a little bit and if, you know, if it'll get less technical now, so you can tune back in. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate your honesty there. Yeah. It is a very complex area, but one thing you just said that uh, piqued my interest was you, you talked about human response yeah. to different conditions. And you've got all of these extraordinary tools at your disposal now, but ultimately what you also need are the human beings in a clinical trial setting to make sense of what you're seeing. Right. I, a absolutely. And, you know, for all of these studies, uh, you know, they really rely on people being willing to come in and, you know, take part in the, in, in these activities. So it's, it's really been, uh, it's really been fun for me to kind of, you know, interact with these people and, you know, see their, their enthusiasm and their willingness to, you know, to come in and, you know, go into the, into the magnet and, you know, uh, go through these various uh, protocols with us. And that's not to be underestimated the amount of, 
determination people need to cooperate with the needs of a, a scientist. Uh, going into a, a clinical trial is uh, quite a commitment, isn't it, for a lot of people? It can last over a, a number of weeks or indeed months. It can involve visits and, as you say, various scans or whatever the protocols uh, require for the particular experiment. And you as the scientist need to trust those individuals, don't you? And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, in, so in, in many of these cases, you know, you have, like, you know, like you mentioned, some of these studies can go on for a while, right? So you have a, and a, a common design is you'll do a baseline measurement and then you'll do some intervention or some exercise training protocol or, you know, in some other studies we're involved in, they do a, a weight loss intervention or something like that. And so you have the, these, you know, people go off, you know, sometimes totally on their own, you know, sometimes, you know, with a, with a monitored exercise training, um, and then they come back for another baseline. And in that meantime, you know, you kind of, you're, you're trusting that they are, their willingness to kind of follow the program, right. To not kind of, you know, go off and change something or change their activity. Yeah. That's a, a great opening to talk about your latest or one of your latest clinical trials and, and studies. And this is being carried out, uh, sponsored by Amazentis, who I mentioned sponsoring this podcast also, looking at urolithin A supplementation and its effect on muscle endurance and mitochondrial health in older adults. Now, let's first of all, we've talked a lot about urolithin A on this podcast over many episodes. And if you are interested in that, just search uh, for urolithin A in, in the index of the podcast. You can go back, listen to our other interviews. But I think, David, it would be worthwhile once again, just kind of setting the stage for, for the premise for this particular study and why the interest for you in urolithin A, which is a metabolite and again, is hugely important to us as we live our everyday lives and of course relationship with mitochondrial health sure so as you know as as people that you know follow this 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 podcast probably already know like you mentioned so urolithin a is a it's a metabolite produced by the uh, microbiome in your gut actually you know so it's kind of it's a product of these bacteria and s multiple other studies have demonstrated that it can actually has the ability to stimulate a process in the body known as mitophagy. And so mitophagy, you can think of mitophagy as a, as a mitochondria quality control, right? So it will, it will, this, this process goes in, it, I, it's able to identify mitochondria that aren't functioning well, break those mitochondria down to the more basic components than that the cell can use to do other things or to actually rebuild healthier mitochondria. So part of my interest in this in urolithin A is because this process of mitophagy is something that declines as we age. And you know, if you think of it as a mitochondrial quality control process, you can see how it's, you know, pretty important for maintaining healthy mitochondria. Without it, what would happen is you would just build up all of these poorly functioning mitochondria and that would not only change your energetics, you know, make it more difficult to meet your energy demand, but it would also change, you know, how the whole cell functioning. So the ability to kind of keep this process churning along is, is critical, you know, 
not only for aging, but you know, also multiple diseases as well. So that's kind of the, the context that we came into this study. And this study specifically, as I mentioned, looking at older adults. So this is people over the age of 65. Correct. With aging, you get this decline in mitophagy, and it's pretty clear that also there's a decline in mitochondrial function that is associated with poor muscle function, right? So, you know, one of the one of the real interests in our lab is on aging and maintaining mobility and uh, maintaining a, a healthy lifestyle as you age. So your ability to improve your mitochondria in this age group could have huge effects on quality of life and susceptibility to disease. So that that's our motivation to you know look at the, the, this aging population. So how did you set out? And this study has has just been published as uh, we uh, publish this episode of the podcast. So uh, I'll put a link into the show notes where you can go and, and read in some detail the methodology, the results, and the conclusions. But just uh, talk us through, David, in terms of the methodology. How did you set about to measure the impact of urolithin A supplementation on these people? What did you get them to do? Yeah, so uh, so there was we kind of took a, a a couple different levels of approach. So the the first thing uh, was just it's this is a standard test that people do. It's just called a six minute walk test or six minute walk distance. And the idea is you just have people walk for six minutes and at a sort of comfortable, steady pace, and then you measure how far they get in that six minutes. So it kind of gives you a you know picture of kind of just sort of normal you know normal functioning. Then we also wanted to zero in a little bit more on just the, the muscle, because obviously the six-minute walk test integrates a lot of different functions of your body, right? So then we looked at the endurance capacity or the, uh, the resistance to fatigue in two muscles, one muscle in the hand and one muscle in the leg. And then we also used the, uh, the MRS measurement I talked about, this in vivo measurement of mitochondrial energetics to look at uh, mitochondrial uh, ATP production. And this is, uh, as they describe it, a, a double-blind study. There is a control group that is obviously not receiving any supplementation, but doing the same range of tests and exercises. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's an important point because really the, these double-blind, it's called a randomized control, you know, double-blind clinical trial. And this is really the gold standard for a clinical trial. You know, if you're, if you're testing an intervention, this is, this is the gold standard. And what this, the double-blind means is that neither the subjects nor the researchers know whether the subject that any individual subject is taking the, what's called the placebo or the control group or the intervention. And so the way that the clinical trial works is you enroll your subjects, you do all your baseline measurements, you as an independent party not involved in the actual measurements assigns people to different groups. They take their supplements for this period of the study, and then we measure them at the end. And then once all the data is collected, then, uh, and it's locked, then that's when the, the unblinding happens. So that kind of removes the, the, the natural risk of, you know, personal bias, right? You know, even if you're, you know, trying to do things as, you know, as much as possible on, you know, on the up and up, you know, the, we can never completely eliminate our human bias. So this, this idea of this double blind study 
removes that ability for that bias. And for those uh, who are following closely this area of research, let's just you and I delve into a few more of of the details. Uh, So it's a thousand milligrams of urolithin A, which was the proprietary MitoPure, which is produced by uh, Amazentis. Uh, This is the daily dose that was given in capsules. So presumably the control group were also given a capsule, a blank, in effect. Yeah. Yes, because they they would need to take something because if they weren't taking something, they would know that they weren't taking any money. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, and you know, in and in, in this study and in and uh, a true double blind study, the the pills that the control group takes look identical to the pills that the that the intervention group takes. So they take an identical looking pill, you know, you know, identical size, you know, identical time, and it's really what's also important too is that the control group is taking the the. Everything about that pill is exactly the same except for the intervention that you're testing. So any fillers or dyes or anything are exactly the same. And how did you settle on the dose of uh, 1,000 milligrams? Because I know this has been going an ongoing debate for people who have been uh, using in, in their health regimes MitoPure, Urolithin A, for uh, a couple of years now, as to what the optimum dose might be. Well, th- I will say that, so that was based on previous studies uh, that that people have done with uh, uh, other or rather randomized controlled studies that Amazentis has done. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So one other interesting, we're kind of moving into the the findings here, but one thing that really piqued my interest was the placebo effect. And my first thought when I I read about groups of people over the age of sixty five doing the the short six minute walk, wasn't it, yeah. uh, on a regular basis. Logic would tell you that even if you weren't taking any supplementation in your diet or doing anything else to improve your performance, pure repetition of that would likely improve your performance, and and that's what you found in both groups. Yeah, I, 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 yes, I think that's a, that's an important point. Is that so? In this study, we found both the placebo group and the intervention group significantly improved their six minute walk time from from the baseline, and you know one of the as you mentioned, one of that is just the repetition, right? You get more comfortable with the, with the study. In this case, they, they did it once at the baseline. They did it four months later. Uh, but another thing that can happen in these studies is, you know, you have people that maybe are, are, uh, are uh, that actually are relatively sedentary, right? And then they're part of a clinical study, right? Testing mobility. They're testing their function. And suddenly maybe this is an inspiration to say, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to get more active, right? I'm going to start walking more. You know, their instructions are you shouldn't really, you know, try not to change your activity much, but you know, you, you're not going to tell people, you know, you can't, can't walk for four months, right? So there's always the risk that people become more active. So in addition to this placebo effect, just the idea of, of being involved in the clinical study has the potential to change behavior. So that improvement, and especially the improvement that you saw in the urolithin A group, you couldn't necessarily, or, or maybe you could to some extent, but could you correlate that with the supplementation with the urolithin A? The, the short answer there to that question is no. because so, so part of doing a rigorous clinical study is you what you need to do is compare the improvement in the urolithin A to the improvement in the, in the placebo. And since both groups improved so much, we didn't see a significant effect of the treatment. The treatment, the improvement in the urolithin A was, you know, just by numbers was a little bit bigger, but it wasn't significantly bigger than the placebo. But you did 
have other findings which you you describe in the paper as uh, maybe a, a promising approach to countering the age-associated muscle decline that clearly we've just talked about and we see yeah. in, in most people as they get older. You you did see a difference there. Yes. So so what was for me what was exciting about this you know even though we didn't see the improvement in the the six minute walk this this you know this real this specific integrative measure uh, what I mentioned before is where we looked at actual muscle fatigue right or muscle muscle endurance. And in that case, in both the hand and the leg, we saw significant improvements in the urolithin A treated group in their ability to repeatedly contract these muscles. You know, so this is really just focusing in on skeletal muscle function. And so that, you know, with this treatment, the muscles became more fatigue resistance. I don't know whether it was actually part of the protocol of the study, but did you ask people especially in that urolithin A group, how they felt as opposed to pure clinical measurements. Was there something discernible about how they felt at the end of it? it you know, it, in, in you know, some studies, there's associated with sort of a fatigue questionnaire. That wasn't part of, of this study. So this, this was really focused on, you know, purely the sort of uh, uh, the, the quantitative, uh, you know, more objective physical measurements. So where do we go from here? And what is your conclusion moving forward? And I noticed the phrase uh, further studies are required to, to look into this. Would you have a, a different study? Would you want perhaps more people? Would you have different protocols uh, looking at this? Yeah. So, you know, I, th I think, you know, expanding on this study, you know, there are a couple, you know, directions that I'm, I personally, you know, would like to see, you know, one, you might do a, a little bit longer uh, intervention. One thing I think that would be really interesting and I think important, as I mentioned, you never know how the just being enrolled in the study affects someone's behavior, right? So you can actually monitor people's behavior, you know, you, with little accelerometers or, you know, a, a Fitbit type things, right, to see if there is a, a change in activity. And that would kind of be uh, important, I think, going forward. But where a lot of our research in the lab is going, what I think is interesting is how does this what I would like to see is maybe pair urolithin with a, a prescribed exercise or a prescribed walking program or something like that. Because as I mentioned, I really, I know I maybe harped on it a little bit earlier and that this role for mitochondria in controlling the signaling and ability to respond to stresses. And that's one thing we've noticed with aging too, is your ability to adapt to exercise goes down a little bit. So exercise is still the best thing you can do for aging, but the bang for the buck you get as you get older goes down a little bit. So can improving mitochondrial function with a mitochondrially targeted intervention, say like urolithin, if we can improve those mitochondria before and during this exercise, can we increase the, the ability of the body to improve with exercise? So that would be, a, I think, something that would be interesting to do in the future is combine a, a supplementation study with an exercise training. But it's fair to say that you still have a, a positive view of the potential based on what you know now, your positive view of urolithin A supplementation. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's exciting for me, is like, as I mentioned, is that we actually improved muscle endurance in the absence of physical exercise. What we found in this study is that the endurance improved just by taking the supplement. So I think to me that that is exciting. I mean, that's showing that the, that that there's actual uh, a positive benefit going on. Um, so now it's you know it's figuring out you know as you mentioned in, uh, earlier, there's a lot of things that go into trying to you know optimize conditions or figuring out you know what role this plays in a strategy for improving health, right? Uh, you know you know you, you touched on dose, 
But what's the context? As I said, exercise is the best thing we can do, right? We all know that, right? However, exercise isn't really an option for some people or, you know, people become either so deconditioned or they're recovering from a hospital stay or something where it's a real barrier. So if you can do something to improve that muscle function that allows someone to get back into exercise, then I think that is a really important strategy for, you know, being able to uh, enhance quality of life for people. And I think that's a really important point because as many people age, the issue of frailty comes in and it's very difficult to reverse that, that once an older person senses that frailty, experiences what it's like to perhaps sit down on the floor and have real difficulty standing up again. It's very difficult to reverse that without some significant interventions. And for many, it is the beginning of, I mean, I hate to put it like this, but the beginning of the end, that kind of slippery slope towards a, a really slow lifestyle that ends up with a lot of sitting in the armchair and watching television. And that's putting it in kind of brutal terms, but that's what happens to a lot of people. Absolutely. You know, and I think, I, I think that's a great point. And, you know, we're, we're focusing, on, focusing here on, on the older adults and this transition into frailty. Uh, but, I mean, it, I, know, I know from my own experience that, you know, if I'm in an exercise program and then I take off for a while, it's a little challenging to kind of get back into that, you right. know. Now, if you compound that with a recent hospital stay, the natural effects of aging on our muscles and our, our cardiovascular health, getting back into that or get, becoming active is, is going to be that much harder. So if there's something, a supplement or, or, or an intervention strategy that can improve your exercise capacity ahead of time, or you, that's going to help you take that next step into becoming more active. And, you know, just kind of, you know, you know, doing your normal activities and then you can kind of slowly ramp that up. So, yeah, that, that and that's that's the real goal of a lot of our or the research in our lab, you know, is, is that that transition is, you know, how, what can we do to help people stay more active since we know being active is the key to is one of the keys to uh, healthy aging. Just a, a little aside here. This study um, ended mid 2020. So mid the first year of the pandemic. And I'm just curious what the challenges were concluding a, a study. Clearly, a lot of the work was done before the pandemic, but concluding a, a study that involves people and a lot of physical contact. What were the challenges that, that faced you, and especially a study involving this cohort of, of very old people? Yeah, this was definitely a, a, a major challenge in that. So the study was going along when the pandemic hit, and then that paused all human research for a while. And so one of the consequences of that was we missed out on some of the endpoints for, for some of the subjects. So we kind of, so we lost some of those endpoints. We had to, you know, delay the study. So the study got extended significantly as we, you know, waited for the, the these uh, initial waves of the COVID situation to pass. And then it was, a, it was a little bit of a challenge getting people back in, right? Cause you know, and, and I think rightly so we're dealing with an aged population you know, so they, you know, as we all know, they were the people most affected by uh, the serious effects of COVID. So, you know, setting up the the conditions in the lab to, you know, first make sure that everyone was as protected as possible, you know, the subjects and the researchers, but then also conveying that that care and that concern to the subjects to get them back in, you know, was a was a bit of a challenge. So it was a you know, we relied on, you know, it's a fantastic team of at the UW that, 
you know, just really developed a great rapport with, with a lot of these subjects, you know, to really convince them that we are taking their safety first. Yeah, exactly. I'd like to get your thoughts uh, in more general terms about the the value of this kind of research. We live in a world where we are bombarded with advertising about this supplement or that supplement that's going to help us stay young, reverse the aging process, a phrase I don't particularly like because I don't think yeah. it's, it's relevant to most people. But we are bombarded with advice, information and suggestions as to what we should do. But you are at the heart of making sure that these products, or at least some of these products, uh, clinically stand up to what they are potentially promising. Yes, and I think that that is a, that's a that's a critical point to make. I think you know, as you mentioned, you know, there's there are a lot of people, you know, peddling you know, uh, anti aging strategies or supplements. And as I mentioned earlier, that this this randomized double blind controlled study is is the 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 really the the key. It's the gold standard for assessing whether there's actually an effect. And I you know I think uh, it really does a disservice the the just the the overwhelming information out there it's hard for the non-expert to sort what's promising and then and what ha- has no evidence so you know i think it's it's important for anybody making these claims to be able to back it up with you know a, a rigorously designed study and that's we've been able to be a part of you know multiple studies like this and i i think that's 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 exciting for us that's a really important i think uh service we have you know that we can actually you know provide this test for these compounds. And I was wondering, post-pandemic, well, maybe we're not post-pandemic yet, but hopefully we're going to get there at some point. Hope, hope we get to a post-pandemic yeah, at some point. exactly. Right? Yeah. That would be good. Do you detect any greater interest in people's concern about their everyday health? And I think we've, if there's one thing we've learned is that our everyday health, our lack of underlying conditions, hopefully is going to serve us positively in terms of this virus or any other future viruses. And it's, I think it's hopefully made some people at least look at themselves in terms of how they live their daily lives. Yeah. You know, I, I could say, I hope so. And I know that there's been, I've seen, you know, more and more workshops and symposia, at least within the aging research community, putting this, you know, the, the, this idea of a healthy lifestyle or, or healthy aging in the context of susceptibility to these other things that people aren't maybe not associating with aging. Right. So I think that messaging is probably, if it's not already, it's going to change in that it's not just staving off frailty or, you know, that allows you to, you know, live independently or go to the grocery store or just do your normal activities. It actually affects all aspects of your disease risk. And I, I think that messaging, like I said, I hope maybe permeates a little bit more and, and is able to penetrate people uh, to, you know, think about you know, how, how, they're, how they're living their life to, uh, in a healthier way. Yeah, I hope so too. In terms of, David, how you live your life based on your lifetime of research and, and studies and detailed studies in, in this area, I'm curious what you have learned that perhaps influences how you live your life. And you've talked a lot about exercise, of course, being crucial. But in terms of uh, a day in the life of yourself, what do you apply in terms of the science to yourself? I, I think that's a great question, right? You know, uh, healer, heal thyself, right? Right. So I think uh, the main thing that I focus on and that I have really gained from my last, you know, 15, 20 years studying aging muscle is I, I, it's really critical for me to maintain a regular exercise program and some sort of activity. And that's not necessarily the same thing, but just kind of, you know, 
maintain function, stressing my muscles constantly is something that I, I, you know, I really think is important to maintain this healthy lifestyle. And then, you know, I, I, I really think about what I eat and those, those are the main, the main effects it's had. And I think on, on the way I, I live and the way I try to look into the future. And then of course, you know, managing stress, right. But that's, yeah, everyone's trying to do that. Right. You know, and that, I, I think those are, those are the three things that, that I sort of in, implement daily exercise, eating and stress management. And then, Looking at, at at the different supplements, I think uh, and, you know, and, and different interventions. I think there, you know, the there's a lot of promise out there for you know strategies for the future. I think we're not quite there yet. From where I'm not, you know, taking a supplement to say, you know, I'm that I know this is the right dose and the right context for me. But I think that there's so much interest now in targeting mitochondria. I think in the next few years, I think where there's really going to see some breakthroughs in this area. Yeah, it's a fascinating area of research. When you talk about stressing your muscles yes. in terms of your exercise, you're talking about lifting weights uh, and perhaps pushing yourself to a uh, an extreme level or what might feel like extreme at the time, but it is just pushing yourself <laughs> gradually every day. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Uh, I have to chuckle at the extreme uh, <laughs> right. level. I have to qualify that a bit. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, so it, so it is, it is lifting weights and, and, and weight bearing type resistance type exercise is what I really focus on. And, uh, you know, I think, I think, you know, walking and, you know, staying active is great. You know, for me personally, I noticed the greatest benefits from, uh, a weightlifting or resistance type exercise. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I just went and, you know, and, and I think also for me, I do a lot of other activities that I think finding something that you enjoy is as important or more important than hitting, you know, than, than lifting weights. Right. You know, even if you just can't stand sitting at a bench and, uh, you know, doing bench presses or squats, you know, finding an activity that pushes you, I think, is, is what's critical. And I think it, there's one thing that I've learned. It is having a variety of activities as well. Yes, it's not, and this can, this can apply to diet as well, not just focusing on, on one thing that you think is good for you and perhaps going to an extreme, to use that word again, but to do a variety of whether it's endurance, exercise, weightlifting, yep. and a, a colourful diet is probably the best way to describe it. Absolutely. Colourful diet and colourful activities. Right. David, your uh, enthusiasm is quite infectious for this area. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you. No, this, this was really fun. And I will, as I said, I'll put some details of this particular study into the show notes for this episode. So if you are following the science of mitochondria, urolithin A, you can really delve into the details. You'll find those details at the Llama podcast website, Live Long and Master Aging. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. You can also navigate all of our previous interviews on this subject for a really deep dive into mitochondrial health. This episode of the Llama podcast was brought to you in association with Amazentis, a Swiss life science company which is pioneering cutting-edge, clinically validated cellular nutrition under its Timeline brand. The Llama podcast is a HealthSpan media production. We're available on all of the main podcasting platforms. You can follow us in social media at Llama Podcast. You can direct message me at Peter Bowes. Many thanks for listening and take care.